We used to jokingly say that we'd have these conferences in a telephone booth, but we can't get in a telephone booth now, can we? <laughs> have to have a whole lot of booths. I'm glad to be here. I have um, discovered what the scriptures had to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and I was surprised to find that people half a world away had discovered the same thing. Holy Spirit uh, leads in that. And um, so for 55 years, I have taught the message. Let me tell you how I got into it. Back in the days when nobody got divorced, my maternal grandparents were divorced. My grandmother was a godly woman, but the grandfather was an alcoholic. And then my paternal grandparents were divorced, and both of them remarried. And my dad had been married before he married my mother. So that was five divorces right there that uh, when I got saved in the Naval Hospital bed, I said, well, I better find out what the Bible says about this, you know. And um, that's how I got into this message of divorce and remarriage. Now, <clears throat> I uh, had a friend who had a very large church. I mean, about a couple thousand members. We were very close friends. And um, his wife died. Jane died. And so he went on a cruise. And he saw a very attractive woman. And he said to another minister friend, said, is there any reason I should not approach her? This was 10 months later. And um, the man checked it out and came back and said, no, there's no reason you shouldn't approach her. And so the next letter that came was that um, he was going to be married. Now, my wife said she would never marry again. I don't know exactly what she meant by that. But, <laughs> uh, but um, Vander said um, uh, in his letter, said, I said to my sister, I wonder if it'd be disrespectful to Jane if I married this early at 10 months. And she said, no, so that would probably be an honor to Jane that you want to be married again. And uh, it, uh, it'd be a tribute to her. And I said, well, I wonder who my wife's not marrying again would be a tribute to. <laughs> but I had this particular gentleman, a very conservative man over the years, prominent leader, I had him scheduled for revival. And I found out that he had married a divorced woman. And um, we had correspondence about it. We canceled his meeting. He didn't like that. And um, I told him, I said, you know, Bill Gothard believes just exactly like we do about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And he says you shouldn't do it. He said, Bill Gothard says that, but Jesus says it's all right. So I've been looking ever since, trying to find out where Jesus said that, you know. <laughs> I haven't been able to find that at all. Speaking of Bill Gothard, uh, I don't know whether you've heard the story, but he uh, sent a card of congratulations to uh, a couple that was be married in Wheaton, a very evangelical conservative area. And somebody asked him, said, Bill, why did you send a card to her? The divorced couple getting remarried. Oh, he said, I didn't know that. So he got on the phone. It's going to happen the next morning, Saturday morning. He got on the phone to them and talked to them from the scriptures, and both of them were convinced that they were wrong. And then they got the minister on the phone and convinced him that it was wrong. 
500 invitations had already gone out. And here everybody's going to come at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. What in the world would they do? They decided that they would go right ahead and meet with these people who were coming and give their testimonies. And um, they gave their testimony as to why they were not going to get married. And then they, they were asked, the group who had come, said, um, how many of you agree with what has, they have done? And all but about ten raised their hand and said they agreed with them. Now, that's a pretty bold move, isn't it? <laughs> but um, that shows you what we're talking about today, uh, about what the Scriptures have to say. I've got a nice Christmas letter. I want to share it with you. You'll understand when I get through why, what it's all about. This is from uh, an evangelist who has been a pastor. He's led groups to Ukraine, Romania, and uh, over there. His son was on the staff of that same very large church I was telling you about, conservative church. And um, then we heard that his son had divorced his wife. And he'd gone into a Christian business, chicken filet. And um, let me read you what uh, the father wrote. He said, um, in June... Our son, Mark, married Becky Kester. The wedding was beautiful. Becky's three sons, Christopher, 14, Matthew, 10, and Jacob, 8, were the best men. Mark's daughter, Kelly, 15, was a maid of honor. They all six now live in a beautiful new home here in this city. We have three grandsons to go with our three granddaughters. Mark stays busy as owner and operator of the Chick-fil-A. Uh, Becky is a special education teacher. They're very grateful. He's very grateful about the beautiful wedding that his divorced son had with a divorced woman. I don't know how you get that to go together, do you? This is a conservative man. This is a man that leads mission trips over the world. <laughs> now, I have a problem with that, and I guess you do too. Let's look at Matthew 5, if we might. And um, the subject that I'm talking about this morning has to do with what Jesus had to say when he said, but I say unto you. Now, Bill Gothard may say that, but Jesus doesn't. No, I don't believe that. Uh, look at Matthew 5, uh, 16. Actually, uh, 18. For verily, Jesus said, I say unto you, uh, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law uh, till all be fulfilled. Look down in verse 20, if you will. But I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And verse 22, but I say unto you. We better find out what Jesus got to say about this thing. Don't you think so? Amen. And then we go on down a bit further in there. Verse 26, verily I say unto you, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. And then this last one, verse 31 and 32. 
it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife and give, shall give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you uh, that whosoever shall put away his wife, uh, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to, marry, to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is put away uh, shall be committing adultery. Well, it must be a half a dozen times that Jesus says, but I say unto you. He corrected some things that Moses had allowed. Moses had permitted divorce. Now, there were two schools of thought, and everybody knows this, Hillia and Shammai, uh, rabbinical schools at the time of Jesus. One of them was very liberal, and one of them was very conservative. The liberal uh, Hillia uh, uh, said you could put away your wife for any cause. And whatever she did that you didn't like, uh, you could put her away. Now, I had an experience that was kin to that one time. I was associate minister in a large church, 2,000-member church, and um, the pastor married a young couple, 18 and 19 years old, and then he went on vacation. Four weeks later, the fella, not the girl, the fella, was back in the office seeking counsel, and I happened to be the one minister who was there to handle it. Here's what had happened. Uh, She had put gas in the car and told him that he couldn't use it unless he paid part of it. And then she burnt the toast, and he slapped her. Four weeks after they got married. You don't even do that six weeks later. (laughs) And um, so I think I know what uh, Helio was talking about, (laughs) for every cause, (laughs) you see. And so then there was the conservative man, Shammai, the rabbinical uh, school of thought, rather. And um, he believed that uh, you shouldn't do that. Let her just burn the toast and pay her for the gas, you know. But uh, what you really shouldn't do, and the only reason you should do, uh, put her away, is if there was adultery involved. Now, I don't know where they get this from, except maybe from Moses, because in the New Testament you don't find that. You can walk up to the average church member as they come out the church doors on Sunday morning and say, what are the grounds for divorce and remarriage, and what will they tell you? Uh, Every time. Go to the minister and ask him what are the grounds of divorce and remarriage, and he'll say adultery. And I ask this question, where does it say that in the New Testament? It's just not that. It says, except for fornication. Well, you know, that can mean unchastity, immorality, uh, all, all these things, uh, illicit uh, sex. That, that's what the translations do to it. But that's not what it means. Over the years, I put down on paper every time the word fornication occurred in the Greek, and I put down on paper every time the adulter- word adultery in the New Testament occurred in the Greek, and I don't find anything about them crossing over from one to the other. They're in contradistinction to each other. And um, Jesus, as you well know already, used the two words in three different verses in contradistinction to each other. He said, now listen, he said that if you divorced and remarried, that you would be committing adultery, except it be for fornication. Now what in the world does the accept clause mean? 
I believe the Bible from word to word and cover to cover. And, um, and yet I, I would I like to check the text too and see everything that it says, because what it really says is what I want to know. I had a professor. I went to a very, two very conservative Bible colleges before I did my graduate work. And um, I had a professor at the liberal school where I did my master's who was conservative. And he believed just like we did, believe it or not, in a liberal school. And the well-known uh, Christian education professor uh, would argue with him sometimes about what he had to say. And she told him one time, said, now, Robert, don't confuse me with Bible verses. <laughs> and um, he was so strong. And so he taught in our class that uh, there was, uh, uh, and somebody had checked it back, he and Dr. Miller from Westminster Seminary, and found that the accept clause was not in Tischendorf's Greek. And so later, after I had graduated, I wrote Dr. Boyd, and I said, now, I want you to tell me where it's not in the Greek in Tischendorf's uh, uh, text. He wrote back to me and he said, Hummy, he said, you have given me a very great assignment. <laughs> he didn't know where to go with it. And so I never thought too much more about it. But just the other day, I read that Westcott and Hort has in the margin, except for fornication. Now, I'm going to leave it to you to dig into the text for yourself and find out. I believe the problem is not so much with that. I believe it's the problem with what is there, <laughs> that people misunderstand what it says. What does the word fornication mean? Do you believe that this whole thing that we're dealing with here hangs very easily on three words in the Bible? It's adultery, fornication, and bound. And the misunderstanding of those three words is where we are coming from. Except for fornication. Well, when Jesus said... In Matthew 5, 30, 32, except for fornication, he said you're committing adultery. So he wouldn't use two different words in the same verse. And then in 19.9 of Matthew, he did the same thing again. Except for fornication, you're committing adultery. And then in Matthew 15, he, without speaking about marriage, he said that out of the heart proceed fornications and adulteries. Three times Jesus used the two words in the same verse. That's not all. Paul did the same thing. In, in Galatians 5, 19, he said that um, uh, there were fornications and adulteries that people were involved in. So there are two different things. Go look it up in Webster's Dictionary. He'll tell us very clearly what it means. Uh, fornication is the... Uh, illicit sexual union of unmarried people and adultery is the unfaithfulness in marriage. But you check the translations and see if that's true. I checked 32 of them and I found uh, about 14 of them did it right <laughs> and 16 of them didn't. And here's what bothers me. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes. The translators of these newer versions will sometimes translate the word pornos 
in one verse, and in the next verse they'll make it immorality or unchastity. And I don't know where they're coming from unless they're trying to get rid of what we're doing today, you know? And um, so we find out that the uh, words are used by Jesus and by Paul in uh, contradistinction to each other. Now, um, what was Jesus correcting? Uh, he was, when he said, but I say unto you, it was different from what somebody else believed. Well, I bet you Hillier and the school of Hillier thought that it was, they were aimed at him because he believed you could put away your wife for everything. And Jesus said, but I say unto you, you do it this way, except for fornication. And I imagine Shammai, the school of Shammai, thought the same thing because he, they thought it was adultery you could put your wife away for. But Jesus said, but I say unto you, except for fornication. And then there was um, the uh, Moses, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. People use that all the time, don't they? And Jesus said about, uh, they said to him, but Moses said, and Jesus said, but I say unto you. And he corrected what Moses had to say. Moses suffered it to be so because of the hardness of their heart. And so, how about these new translators we just spoke about? Uh, I imagine if they look, listened to what Jesus said, they would find themselves corrected too. But I say unto you. And uh, the ministers today, I knew of one minister said that anybody that has a license come to me, I'll marry them. Now, we don't do that, do we? We had to screen them. I've had many, many people to call and uh, want to be married, people I didn't know. And I'd try to screen them. I said, well, have either one of you been married before? Oh, yes, I was married once and he was married twice. I said, well, I don't mean to be disrespectful to you, but I can't do that. And I said, if it's wrong for you to be married a second time, it'd be wrong for me to do it, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> and then they go somewhere else and get married. Uh, I had an experience since I retired, I've had 10 churches that uh, in interim. And I went to one in mid-Tidewater, Virginia, where they were exploring the idea of having an interim pastor. And I met with the committee. And I always would tell them that I don't marry divorced persons. I say uh, to them, I don't necessarily ask that you agree with me, but I ask you to respect my convictions. And so I said that to this committee. And one of the ladies on the committee, she said, well, I've been married three times. I said, my husband over had been married four times. <laughs> well, we found out right quick that that wasn't a marriage <laughs> on that interim work. But um, we find, and I'll tell you something else I've found, too, over the years. Having been in the ministry a long time, I've been in the pastorate those 55 years, and I've been in Christian radio ministry much of that time. But um, I've found that there's been a tremendous change in the churches that I've served. Uh, we never had it to come up in the earlier years. There's never a suggestion that a divorced and remarried person would be a deacon or a minister. But now some of the conservative churches have two or three on the board that are uh, 
abortion remarried. And uh, the last church I served was a very fine church except for that. And the day that the Lord told me if I didn't preach this sermon there, that I wouldn't be preaching the whole Word of God, I gave it to them just exactly like I'm giving it to you today. And they accepted it. But um, we have a whole lot of problems. I'll tell you what bothers me a whole lot. When you look at Christian television and see people paraded out and interviewed and give their testimony that um, have been married, divorced and remarried, or you find uh, people that, uh, that excuse that. And uh, one, one uh, evangelist, in fact, he came to our city of Richmond, and I was his public uh, relations director, and one of my deacons was his treasurer. We had up to 11,000 in the Coliseum uh, as he spoke, and he was good. But later, he married his secretary and um, lost his ministry for 20 years. And then one of the Christian papers came out with showing him after he was restored at 70. And um, they, he said, I've lost 20 years in the ministry. Well, the next thing I read about him, he's living on a ranch with his third wife. Now, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? Something bad wrong with that. And so we've run into that kind of thing over and over and over. Um, I'll tell you who understood what the word fornication meant, they accept clause. I think the Corinthians did. Jesus, uh, Paul rather, told them in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, said um, to avoid fornication, uh, every man should have his own wife and every uh, woman should have her own husband. Right before that, it says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, when our children, we have four, we go out on a date we would tell them now, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And our very humorous son, second son, says, but it's not great. (laughs) 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 And so, so I believe the Corinthians understood from Paul, divinely inspired, that to avoid fornication, unmarried sexual relations, that it was good for every man to have his own wife and every wife to have her own husband. Um, then there's another thing that I'd like to call your attention to. These I've, I've really found 45 different translations of the word of fornication and six verses in 32 translations. 45, actually it was it was a large percentage of those translations. Now, there were 14 uh, translations that got it right. King James got it right. Believe it or not, the Revised Standard Version got it right. And um, I think Goodspeed did. But uh, we put down, this in our book back there, we put down 32 translations and what they said about six major passages that have to do with fornication. And... Um, they use all kinds of translations for it. But uh, here's where I've got a problem, and I, I hope you'll follow it. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 uh, through 11, 
the divine inspiration that Paul had, he was led to use four different verses for sexual sins. Not turn fornication into immorality and unchastity and things of that sort. And there were four different things in that that used a different Greek word for uh, deviation from the norm on sexual relations. One of them, now this is often misunderstood. One, the first one, uh, Paul said that they wouldn't inherit the kingdom of heaven if uh, there was fornication. But that's not the same word in the Greek. That's another word that has to do with a male prostitute. It's a variation of that word. There are four variations of the word fornication in the Greek. One of them means a strumpet or a prostitute. One of them means a male prostitute. One of them just means prostitution, and then you've got the one that means um, uh, unmarried people. And so what are the four different words that Jesus and Paul used? Actually, Paul here. Uh, one of them was that word for a male prostitute. And anybody who practices that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then the second thing, it said adultery. Well, we all understand that. All you've got to do is look up, if you need to, Webster's Dictionary and find out that that's uh, unfaithfulness in marriage. But do you know that some of these translators of the Bible have translated fornication as unfaithfulness? And one of them translated twice in Matthew as adultery. Well, that is kind of ignorant, if you'll pardon me for saying so. Because you don't say, except for adultery, you're committing adultery. And uh, you've heard that before, and you've read it in the books. But uh, then there was a third thing, that a Greek word. It was used in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, rather 6. Let me get it straight. 7, 9 through 11. 6, 9 through 11. And um, it's a, about somebody being effeminate. Did you read that? And uh, what does that mean in the original Greek? Well, it means uh, a homosexual who takes the position and situation of, of being the feminine person involved in the uh, illicit sexual effect. And it also has a meaning of having a catamite. Uh, that's like the NAMA group today that have men and boys and they want to legalize that relationship. And then it has the word homosexual. That means uh, uh, men with men, it says. So why would Paul, by divine inspiration, use four different Greek words and the translators come along and make fornication mean all of them. It just isn't going to work, is it? And I don't claim to be that great a Greek scholar, but I got sense enough to know that. <laughs> and it doesn't take too much to, to study it out. Well, let's look at Matthew 19 and see where, and these are passages you all have dealt with, um, and see exactly what uh, Jesus said there. There must be a reason why, and this, the only reason is an exception, is in Matthew's Gospel. And that's pretty easy to figure out. Matthew's Gospel was written to the converted Jews. They understood exactly what he was talking about. But look at verse uh, 1, 19. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. 
And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? I think they've been listening to the school of Hillia, don't you? And uh, he answered and said unto them, Have you not read? You know, reading the Bible uh, takes care of a lot of things, won't it? And I found a number of verses, and you might want to jot these down, uh, where Jesus used that phrase, have you not read? In Matthew 12, 3 and 5, and in 21, 16 of Matthew, and Mark 2, 25, and Matthew 22, 29 and through 32, and then uh, Matthew 21, 42, and then we've got to go to Acts 17, 11, where these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things be so. Jesus said it several times. Have you not read? No, we're just going to read the Word and find out what it says. Uh, you know what people have been reading? They've been reading the commentaries. And um, you might not agree with this, but the first school I went to was in Alberta, Canada Prairie Bible College. They didn't permit us to use commentaries. We uh, had to do original research. They said, now you can use commentaries when you get out, but don't use them here. And uh, so I have 600 commentaries on microfiche, and I've never looked at one of them. I, I was trained to study the Word instead of study what somebody wrote about. I was telling Brother Webb this morning, I had a minister to come. We, uh, being in the pastorate, we also had Christian radio stations. We had three. And um, this minister came in, and he had a kind of a bit younger wife, I noticed. And he was very good at the piano. He sat down in the studios and played the piano and all, and then he arranged to have a program on our station. And uh, then I found out he was divorced and remarried. And so I called him into the office, and I told him I didn't think he'd been quite fair with us, that uh, he knew the stand that we took on this thing of marriage. He pulled out a sheaf of papers that he had written, everything the commentators had to say about what was right about what he was doing, you see. And I don't believe you ought to preach the commentaries. That's what somebody wrote maybe a hundred years ago about it. I believe it'd be better to preach what he said. Amen? And so... We've had some experiences along that line. And, um, I, and now I've got one major problem that I haven't solved yet. I must have 15 or 20 different couples that I pray for regularly that are divorced and remarried. And I've told the Lord, I said, then anybody on earth has got wisdom enough to handle that situation but you. <laughs> All right? Because uh, the Bible says that they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that worries me. And I tell you what, there's several places in the Bible. It's not when a person falls into sin one time. It's they're, they're participles where they keep on doing it and practicing it. And that's in, in Galatians 5.19 is a participle, doing. And in 1 John 3, there's a participle in there three times about people who committeth sin or are doing sin and people who keep on practicing sin, I don't know how they're going to get out of it. I've got two ways and one of them I'm afraid you might not agree with. Um, they'll have to 
uh, extricate themselves from the situation they're in. Uh, that's a biblical thing, not a legal thing we're talking about. Or the second thing is, I believe God might take one of them's life. You say, where do you find that? I find that in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul delivered a young man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. Now, the translators will tell you, and commentators, that that 1 Corinthians 5 is incest, because the young man was involved with his father's wife. Well, let me tell you something. It wasn't blood kin. It was technically incest from Leviticus 18 through 22. But it was fornication on his part as an unmarried young man. And it was adultery on her part as a married woman. Can you get through that? So there's nothing there about incest. And... um, the, uh, in fact, the word incest is not even in the New Testament. Now, it's terribly wrong, according to the Old Testament, and, uh, and morality and clean, uh, purity and that sort of thing. But um, it's just not there. Now, some people want to get rid of this thing about John the Baptist um, by claiming that Herod and Herodias were committing incest because she was his brother's wife. Technically, that's true, but that wasn't what the problem was. She was committing adultery, and he was committing fornication. All right? Now, I just had a dilemma. We just published uh, my life study on this whole thing this week, and it's back there. But um, we um, tried to come to a conclusion about what we might put in the front piece of the book. And I thought maybe if I took my head on a picture and put it on a platter dripping with blood... That, that it might give the idea of where we're going with this thing. Um, John the Baptist lost his head telling Herod, it's unlawful for you to have her. Now, I'll tell you, there's another situation there that you might want to look into. I had a man to tell me one time that God didn't have a thing to do with his first marriage. Uh, well, he did with Herod and Herodias because they were Roman people. They were not uh, Christian people. And it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife. So there's something about unsaved people. The, the marriage situation, the law of marriage, covers everybody just like the law of gravity does. And so those are some of the things that are interesting to check out together. Now, I want to share with you just a few, uh, a little bit of time I have left, something that has to do with um, those translations I was talking about. You might want to jot some of these things down. The, um, the, the, the translations that have got it right on translating fornication, uh, the American Standard Version got it right, ASV, if you want to jot down a note. The RSV, Revised Standard Version, got it right every time. Well, actually, one time they got it wrong. They put fornication in Matthew 5 and unchastity in 19. Same word. And let's see, the New American Standard Version got it right every time. The New English Bible got it right every time. Alfred got it right. And um, let's see here, Barry uh, got it right. 
uh, Connor Berry got it right, and um, Knox got it right. Now, there are only three others or four. Uh, the Phillips translation got it right, PHI, if you want to jot it down. And um, Taylor got it right in his young letters. I met him one time, uh, Kenneth Taylor, translator of the Living Bible, and uh, met him at uh, Moody when he was head of Moody Press. And he had 10 children. And he wrote these little Bible pictures and uh, explanation of them for his own children. I used them with my children when they were growing up. But um, he did a paraphrase, as you know, Living Bible. Now, I've got a problem. Uh, I, uh, I liked him, but I didn't like his version. Uh, I'm not a paraphrased man. I don't know all that much about Greek, but I know enough to know when it's right. <laughs> and um, then I met him later at Wheaton College Church of Christ and, uh, uh, there. And the way he translated the Living Bible was he wrote an hour into Chicago every morning to Moody Bible Institute, and he translated on the, on the way in. But um, uh, there's a good news version. Some of you have heard of that. Now, I had a problem with that version. Uh, Carol and I, my wife, won a truck driver to the Lord on one occasion and uh, in the hospital with cancer of the throat. And later, we went to his home to visit him, and I wanted to try to establish him in the faith. And so he, he smiled. He couldn't talk. But he smiled at me and held up a Bible that somebody had given him. It was a good news for modern man. So I said, well, I'll read a verse or two about the blood of Christ to him. And I turned over to Revelation 1, 5b, where it says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And it wasn't there. <laughs> I mean, here I'm trying to read it to a man that's dying about the blood of Christ, and it simply said death. Well, I had to scramble real quickly to get over to 1 John 1, 7 to tell him something about the blood of Christ. You've got to be careful about the translations. And uh, you, if you don't know the difference, ask somebody that does know, you know? And um, you don't need to worry about... Now, I went to Jerusalem, Israel to study on one occasion at Hebrew Union College of Biblical and Archaeological Studies and excavated down near Beersheba. And um, I uh, was with Frank Moore Cross of Harvard, who was teaching our course on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, he's not necessarily noted as a conservative, uh, being from Harvard. But the whole course, the, in, the result of that course was that what we have translated in, like the King James or some other, uh, that that and the Dead Sea Scrolls, after the weeks and weeks of study, his conclusion was there are no significant differences in what we have here and what we have there. I thought that was pretty good. You can figure out what is the best translation. I don't know which one you like best, but I like one that's true to the Greek. And um, now, let me, let me just give you this, and then I'm going to be through. Um, the good speed... I said wrongly a while ago. Goodspeed translated the word fornication where Jesus said it in Matthew 5.32, right. But in 19.9, he called it unfaithfulness. That's the same thing as adultery. And then um, 
Now, in John 8.41, the critics of Jesus knew what the word meant because they said to him, very sarcastically, we be not born of fornication. <laughs> they knew exactly what they They didn't believe in the virgin birth like you and I do. And so, the um, then over in, in Moffat's version, he translated Matthew 5.32 as unchastity, but 19.9 is fornication. You get it right, just opposite. And then he translated another passage, sexual vice, same word, uh, on and on you can go with these translations. And we have them all in the book. Weymouth got it right every time but one. And he called it licentiousness. And the Amplified Bible, believe it or not, got it right every time. It was fornication. Now why are we making such a deal? I believe that everything that we're dealing with here in this subject of divorce and remarriage hangs very loosely on three Greek words. Fornication, adultery, and what does bound mean in 1 Corinthians 7.15? Some people say you're not bound. You can go out and get married. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 10 and 11 before that you don't do it. It says in verse 739 that if your husband is dead. Now I'd like to close by just giving you the grounds for divorce or actually grounds for remarriage. Um, Everybody talks about what are the grounds for remarriage. Um, is it for every cause? No, Helia, it's not for every cause. Is it for adultery? No, Jesus said it was for fornication. And uh, then this afternoon, first session this afternoon, I'll be dealing with the espousal period. And we've got to go from here to there before we get the whole message together. And so... What would be the grounds for remarriage? Well, in Romans 7, 2 and 3, it says if a woman is married to another man while her husband liveth, she's committing adultery. But if he be dead, uh, she is at liberty to be married to him. And in 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, it says that the woman who's is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if he be dead, uh, she is free to marry. And then it gives a qualification only in the Lord. How many times we've seen a widow jump out of the frying pan into the fire. But it must be a Christian person that she marries. So if you want biblical grounds for remarriage, uh, you got them. It's death. Maybe we bow together for prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we came here together to talk about the scriptures. And thank you for the interest that everyone is showing in what the Word of God actually says. And we remember, Lord Jesus, that you corrected so many things when you said, but I say unto you. And we're listening to what you've got to say about it and what your Word has to say. And we praise you, Lord, that you made it clear to many of us in Christ's name. Amen.